0: From Potomac Fund Management, this is the Conquer Risk Podcast. Join us as we discuss the business of running an RIA firm and the practice of investment management. And now, our hosts. So welcome to the Conquer Risk Podcast. Today, we're going to actually do a little extra before we start the real podcast. And I think part of this is because last week, my podcast intro sucked so bad, I had to do it twice. So so we're going to do a little extra piece in front here. That little extra piece is one of the most common questions I get is about how do we find content. And this particular podcast is going to be a perfect example. You read an article. I read an article. You called me the next morning and, and laughed and said, have you seen this thing? And I had, and I laughed, and we basically both called both called bullshit on it right away, right? So you and I talked through, and that's the whole point of these podcasts is you and I are having these discussions anyway, and we talked through and found a little research to bolster our our thoughts, our initial thoughts, and that's what we're going to talk about and help educate you along the process. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. You good with that, Manish? Yeah. All right. Rock and roll. So on that note, let's uh, dive in. What is the article, right? What is the point of what we're, we're talking about today? And that is a recent article from RIA Intel uh, that uh, discussed the Cerulean Associates report on how many advisors are retiring, right? And and essentially, you and I both had the same thought, which is, wait a second. this. They like keep saying the same thing over and over, which is, and I'm going to quote this article. Over the next ten years, Cerulli estimates more than 111,500 advisors will retire, representing more than one third of the workforce and assets. Well, if that is true, that is a monumental. Uh, it will have a monumental effect on
1: all kinds of things.
0: I just don't think it's true. How about you? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, shout out to RIA Intel and Mike Thrasher. Uh, I really dig this new site they got, and uh, they do some fantastic reporting on, on our community. So if anyone, uh, you know, let's put that in the show notes to, to get to yeah, RIA Intel. I, I'm steady on that site. So, you know, sure. I, I know you have some stats. I had some yeah. anecdotal thoughts when I talked to you about the fact that I feel like I've heard this shit for 10 years, you know, uh Boomer advisors are retiring. It's going to change the industry, yada 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 yada. And here we are, ten years later, saying the same stats over and over again. What what did you dig up on on the historical stats that people have released?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we just started with the quote from that article, right? And and so I did some digging, and I'm going to give you two other pieces. There's a report I found in uh, uh, that. Reference, and again, we'll put this stuff in the show notes, so you can go read this boring information if you want. <laughs> but uh, in, uh, in 2010, Cerulli referenced 320,000. I'm just rounding. 320,000 advisors, right? Another report I found in May of 2013 from Financial Advisor magazine discussing the Cerulli report, which, by the way, I actually do like the Cerulli report, but I'm going to read this sentence. Let's see if this sounds at all familiar over the next decade 12 to, to 16,000 of the nation's 315,000 advisors and brokers will retire each year. Okay, so if 12 to 15 or 12 to 16, excuse me, are are retiring, um, you know, each year for 10 years, that puts you in that 120 to 160,000 range, which is what they just said is 111,000 are retiring. Now I'm going to simplify this. Here are the we just threw out a bunch of numbers. I'm going to make this real clear. In 2010, Cerule th- said 320,000 advisors. In 2013, they said there're 315,000 advisors. In the report that just came out in 2019, they said there's 310,000 advisors. However, each time they're saying that we're going to lose 100,000 plus a year.
1: And well, listen, you listen, can't this have both. <laughs> this is why people I mean, hate the media. That's why we cry bullshit. Is, this is yeah. why people hate the media because no one, no one backtest. I, you know, I know people don't like that word. <laughs> but no one backtests their bullshit. Like if you're reporting a data and you have a headline clickbait, and we did a podcast on this where you know, they, they drag you in and you know, if you go back and look at it, they've said the same shit for years. And to me, and we talked about this, retiring is one of those things where you, you work at a power plant or you work at something that involves your hard labor and after 40, 50 years of work, you just don't wanna do it anymore. But an advisor or service-related business, you know, with technology, you're not a manufacturer and plant worker. You can work anywhere. You can do your job in any location. And so the, the concept of retirement just is not the same, right? And don't mention your rig at all in this conversation. <laughs> um, okay. But, right, I mean, it, what, what is retirement in this case anyway?
0: Yeah, so so here's a, this to me. This is one of the most simple examples that I've had in my career, and I, I see this all the time. <clears throat> but at my former role, uh, I had one of my advisors call me, and he said, "I just want to run run this by you," because he was uh, so. Let's just say between seventy and seventy five, lived in a beautiful community. He golfed three four times a week, traveled wherever he wanted, sometimes in a rig. Notice I didn't say my rig. You said I couldn't say my rig. He traveled in a rig. He also, you know, went on vacations around the world. And basically at that point in his career, his book, you know, is a, a little over $100,000 a year in revenue to him. And it, it was 85% advisory, right? Using third-party managers. I mean, this is such a simple book. He could do whatever he wanted. And his practice was built with decade-old clients, right? People that he'd been working with for 10, 20, 30 years, so, at some point he says he calls me and he says, "You know, I just had an advisor offer me four hundred grand for my book, and I'd have to stay on for basically two years to make sure everything kind of got moved over and you know there's no problem. Should I do it? Why the hell would you do it i mean it, you know." <laughs> okay, so you get a $200,000 pop, I guess, you know, you
1: don't have to work well, the last two years of that period, but there, there are, but you're, there are ancillary things like, you know, if you, if you health like, and yeah. Uh, and mean, well, no, not just that. I mean, the business running, the business is still, you know, there, I have to do things every week that I find myself asking why, why the fuck do, am I still in this business when you're dealing with technology that doesn't work or payroll or state issues and and there's things that pop up. So it's not, I don't think it's a strictly a numbers game. But yes, to your point, if you are outsourcing everything and running a really efficient and lean practice, why would you take 400000 when that's four years of revenue? Right. Well, and this is
0: where I think our conversation sort of a, m- makes another move and that is away from just those numbers to to the concept of the merger acquisition succession planning stuff and I think uh, in my opinion is we need to draw a line in the sand and that line in the sand is the difference between what I'm gonna call a sole practitioner and the the bigger multi-person firms now I'm not talking about an entire broker-dealer You might be an advisor who works, you know, who is maybe associated with a broker dealer and does most daily advisory business through that corporate RIA, that's fine, but how many people do you have in your office? And I think there's a big difference between the person who either is by themselves, has one or two staff people, maybe maybe one other advisor, but primarily their own, right? I said a sole practitioner. Uh, and the group that has multiple advisors, the the person who has multiple advisors underneath them, they've created this entire structure. The, those are two different animals. And the TDA conference, I talked about that in one of our recent podcasts, right? They did all kinds of stuff on merger and acquisition, but it was all for the you know four hundred, five hundred thousand uh, dollar, or five hundred four and five hundred million dollar AUM practices. Well, those are multiple advisors typically and large staff and. I totally get that there's a place for that merger acquisition and for the top dog to retire because that business moves on. There are people there to support it. The sole practitioner, it's just not the same. And I, that's why I cry bullshit on this.
1: Those well, people aren't it's, retiring. They're it's, either... not, it's not a business, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It's, a, it's a lifestyle business. You're creating uh, a, a situation where you're self-employed uh, and it's not necessarily a business that's going to last 40, 50, 60 years. It, it's something that you created for yourself to run a good practice and enjoy your clients. And and to your point, I think those aren't good acquisition targets, right? You have the person that never wants to leave or never wants to give up. You have a financial situation where there's no reason why that person should give up or leave. And so it makes and this is why these numbers don't change because most advisors. And I'm just, this might be totally not true, but I'm just, I think most advisors (laughs) are sole practitioners. Um, I don't have data to back that up, but uh, that's something we should look into. But I think most advisors out there are sole practitioners. And so that's why the numbers aren't changing because they're just simply not retiring because they don't want to. And to your point, I don't think anyone really wants to buy them.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic if you, if you think about it like this. It, it, the, the book is a depreciating asset. And what I mean by that is if you had the two equal books, one is, a, again, uh, one is by a 55-year-old advisor and one is a 75-year-old advisor. If they're the same size, use the same solutions, and they both mirror image themselves, which I don't know about you, but most of the advisors I know, if you look at the people who are their clients, they are a lot like themselves demographically. So, wait a second, the revenue is exactly the same. I'm going to pay more for that younger advisor's book than I am the older advisor's book because people are more likely to die off. The assets go away. There's all kinds of reasons for that. And let's face it, who, who wants to go buy that older, there's just not as many people out there, um, you know, or it's going to be a much, much smaller multiple. So the advisor who has the book wants the bigger multiple. <laughs> and yeah. i just don't think you see as many deals in that scenario for that reason right um anyway so i mean that's 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 one step it's just a different it's just a different take um and i think we're going down that uh you know that same same path together we like i said we both on the phone we were we were laughing at the fact that we both had the same thoughts so what about junior advisors now uh, do you have any thoughts about junior advisors in this a spot of well why don't the everybody talks about junior advisors coming up and buying the practice
1: well, so, all right, let's, let's take a personal example, right? I, I started at Potomac out of school. So this is the only real job that I've ever had. And I sort of grew in the ranks and I had talks with former owners about buying into it and, and how to go about doing that. And in the early years, you know, you don't have the money. So you are doing two things. You are approaching your senior advisor to say, let me buy a portion of the book and also please finance it for me. <laughs> right. So the person <laughs> in that position is like, hold up. I'm selling you you know a piece of revenue. Uh, in addition, I'm also going to finance it for you. Why don't I just keep that piece of the book? <laughs> you know it's and so it's it's a difficult right. position to not only get someone to agree to sell you that, um and then also sell financing. And I think a lot of senior advisors use it as a carrot to say, yeah, you know, in another five years for sure, you'll you, you know you can buy a piece. Five years go by, you know, they're busting their ass, working hard. The junior advisor. And it's it's you just keep moving the goalposts further further away, and so I don't I just don't think it's just a difficult situation unless the senior advisor truly wants to shut the door and walk away.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll give some credit to David Grow, the uh, uh, one of the folks at FP, FP Transitions, uh, you know, responsible for that business and you know he referenced the 5 year rolling period you know almost like a performance measure and and that's basically you know the like you talk about the senior advisor tells the junior advisor that uh, in 5 years why uh, we'll we'll do this buyout we'll get this done and then suddenly 5 years rolls around and it's yeah it's going to be another 5 years you know i'm not quite ready yet right and then that one ends and it, it just becomes this recurring thing where they were just they're not quite done, not quite ready to stop yet. And it never happens. So I think as a junior advisor, you need to get something very solid in place at the, be, you know, near the beginning. Well, when you, I you mean, listen, I had, or... I had nothing
1: solid in place. You know, I, I just sort of thought, I mean, <laughs> that's I,
0: why it took so damn long.
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, because I bought into a I right. bought into a small percentage and then another one and, and, and maybe it was a right. carrot. Maybe it was, you know, so there was some transactions that were being done. But there was nothing formal about maybe, you know, the, the eventual takeover. And so, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think you have to get something solid. But if you put yourself in a senior advisor's shoes, that's a hard decision to make. You know, maybe their kids are, you know, young or, you know, they're, they still have to go through school or there's still things they want to do. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, in five years from now, I'm going to hand this business over. So I, I think both people are yeah. in a tough spot.
0: Yeah, they are. And and now there's, uh, I mean, now you mentioned self-financing. Uh, can you speak to, to more of the bank loan? I think we're starting to see just like more venture capitals coming in for the large merger acquisition stuff. I think we're seeing more bank opportunity for the junior So
1: Yeah. Now. And so once again, let's use my personal example. The first 10% I purchased was financed by one of the former owners, right? Uh, the second 10%, luckily I was able to pay cash. And when I bought out the 80%, we were looking at financing again, and or just doing a you know promissory note, and then you know it got introduced the bank financing part of it. So I think in the past five years, there's been a huge influx of bank financing, whether it's through SBA loans or even these companies that focus in on RIAS, and that does open a whole new opportunity for people because you can pay cash. You know, you get the bank financing, you hand that advisor a check to buy his shares. He's not on the hook for necessarily making sure revenue sticks around for 10 years or doing financing. So I think with that, I would have thought that more of these deals would have been done because I think it is valuable if you can hand someone a check and say, look, you know, you built a great business, leave. On For both sides, right? Uh, yeah. And But it hasn't changed much you know, so but but the the bank financing is definitely more available than it ever was in the past. Yeah, probably because rates uh, I mean, are so it, fucking low. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, there you go. Well, and that's that's really I think my my takeaway is number one: the the premise itself is just we've debunked it. Um, but also, if you're a junior advisor, if your senior advisor talks about this sort of move but isn't willing to sell you bits of ownership over time that's probably a clue that they're not really that serious about getting out of the game right um i mean well i love it when other people other employees are owners yeah because their skin is in the game but you know it's not the not everybody's in that position or, or or wants
1: to do that i get it so i think the concept this is my conclusion, is that the concept of retirement has changed. So the entire study is just bunk, right? If you're an advisor, you use third party money managers, you outsource your tech, you outsource everything. You're just meeting with your clients and making sure that they're on their path for retirement. You can do that anywhere and you can, it doesn't take, you know, hours on hours to to do that. So just the concept of retirement makes this whole thing sort of A dumb statistic to begin with, probably. Yeah, and
0: you know the reality is we shouldn't be. Nobody listening or watching this should be surprised that this is the conclusion. Because let's face it, for regular people, your clients, retirement is changing, right? It's oh, I retire from my career and now I start that career that I always wanted to, you know, or or whatever. Um, There's just it's a totally different gig than it was five years ago. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, on that note, uh, what uh, you got any recommendations or, or other conclusions, other things? No, you no, we got. I
1: got some good recommendations actually. Uh, well, right. we'll see. I just got it yesterday. So, <laughs> if you can see, I got these new uh, Jabra Elite uh, headset things in. So, so here's the backstory. Shout out to Justin Costelli with the Advisor Growth Community. He invited me on to do a presentation, and it's a Zoom presentation where you are on camera. And my current headset. Yeah looks like this
0: for for zoom and explain why that's your headset even though we well, do these podcasts so and believe nobody it or not
1: airpods don't actually work on computer uh, unified communications it doesn't work on your Take laptop those
0: things back off man no
1: i like them uh they don't work <laughs> on laptops and so you know if you're doing a zoom presentation you actually can't use airpods so jabra actually is the only uh earbud company that makes the USB dongle that you can put in so they work on your on your laptop or desktop. And so when I, did, you know, when I do this presentation uh, or webinar, I didn't want to wear these big ass headsets. So I just got them yesterday. They seem to be working okay. They're about 200 bucks. Um, so hopefully I can test them some more and, and maybe uh, have the staff all get them too.
0: Yeah, sweet. Um, now just for clarity, they work both with, because of the dongle, they work with the computer as well as you can hook them to your phone and use them like any other headset.
1: Correct. Yeah. So. I, Perfect. I, it's this is one of, about yeah, being able to do them both. It's weird that okay. you would think that this technology would work on laptops, but apparently they don't unless you get that dongle. And so that's why you see these big old headsets when you're giving these presentations, and they look horrendous. Anyway. Cool.
0: All right. Well, mine's a little different. It's really simple. And that is, I'm down in Lake Okeechobee, Florida, and I love to bass fish. And, you know, I've gone out a couple of times in my kayak on my own, and that's all fine and dandy um, around some of the edge water and so forth. But look, when you travel around and you're, especially if you're going to a place where you're at new water and you don't, I mean, I don't get to fish a lot because I'm, I'm busy working, right? But when you do, go, just go pay for a guide. You I should have it twice. Yeah. There you go. Um, that would be great. I think I shall. Uh, give me a few years. Um, you know, but the, hire a guide, let them put you on the fish, and then you just knock them out right and left. I mean, and look, sometimes you're going to go get skunked. I've done that before. But overall, I think if you're going to new water, or you want to learn the new water to start with, not that you're going to steal the guide's spots, don't be that guy or that gal. But you know, again, pay the guide. Let them take you out. Let them explain what kind of grass that is. What all that stuff. And uh, you'll be smarter for it. It'll be worth your money. And then if you do go out by yourself, at least you're you're more prepared for that water to go fishing. So there you go. It's not a specific recommendation. It's a generic, generic one, general one. But uh, I think it's worth it. And it, I got my my personal best twice uh, for my bass fishing, and I'm a happy camper. Now I gotta go kick it up another notch here in a few weeks. Cool. So. Anything else? That's it. All right. Rock and roll. Uh, Like, subscribe. We appreciate you listening. That's two two rock
1: and rolls in one goddamn podcast. Hey, I do what I do, but you know what? I
0: haven't mentioned my rig once. See ya. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Potomac Fund Management.